0: Economies, you know, handled the second wave pretty well uh, and the prospects are, are reasonably good, obviously subject to any third wave or any, any uh, new strains that come through that might impact the, the country.
1: And how is consumer spending holding up under, under this lockdown and the spread of Covid?
0: I think it's struggling to get back into, you know, it's certainly nowhere near 2019 levels and it's nowhere near uh, pre-pandemic. But we're running into festival season. So we're running today, of course, is Ganesh Chaturthi, There's a holiday here in India. And then mm. you run into um, uh, Diwali um, in the following months. And that, that'll that be a good indicator of how the consumer is because mm. they you know these are high-spending seasons. So we'll mm. be watching that closely to see if the consumer recovers.
1: OK, Toby, have a good weekend. Thanks very much indeed. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. For the final time this week, let's take a look at equity markets around the region. They're all trending to the upside. The S X two hundred is up zero point seven percent in Australia this morning. In Japan, the Nikkei two twenty five has risen about zero point six percent so far. In South Korea, the Cosby is up about half a percent, and futures markets indicating a gain of about half a percent for the Hang Seng at the open as well. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Do stay tuned for Back Chat in just a moment with Jim Gordon, and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods and a few showers. Very hot during the day. Maximum temperature of around 33 degrees. There is a very hot weather warning in force. Going to remain very hot over the weekend and thunderstorms triggered by high temperatures. The temperature right now is 29 degrees, 76% relative humidity. It's coming up to 8.32. Here's Barry O'Rourke with a half-hour news.
2: A fire at a flat in Pactin Estate in Shepkip May has killed one person and injured 11 others. The blaze broke out at about 2.30 in the morning and was put out by firefighters about 30 minutes later. The man who died was rushed to hospital after he jumped from the building. About 600 people were evacuated during the blaze. National Security Police have charged the Hong Kong Alliance in support of patriotic democratic movements of China Chairman Li Chuk Yan and the group's two vice-chairs, Albert Ho and Chow Hang-tung, as well as the group itself, with inciting subversion of state power.
1: More from Todd Harding. Officers have also charged Chao Hang Tung and four other members of the Alliance's Standing Committee, Leung Kam Wai, Chan To Wai, Tang Ngoc Kwan and Choi Hong kwong with failing to comply with the requirement to provide information requested by the police under the implementation rules for Article 43 of the National Security Law. The police have also frozen 2.2 million Hong Kong dollars worth of assets belonging to the Alliance. The case will be mentioned at West Kowloon Magistrates Court later this morning.
2: The International Atomic Energy Agency has announced the thorough review of Japan's decision to start pouring a million tonnes of contaminated wastewater from the stricken Fukushima nuclear plant into the sea. China and South Korea have reacted angrily to Tokyo's plan. The BBC's Will Leonardo explains
1: more. This water has already been treated even before it's diluted, so most of the worst isotopes have been taken out. There's one that remains, it's called tritium, and it's actually not hugely harmful for humans. So... Altogether, the Japanese government has made this case to say it's been treated, we're going to dilute it to a point that the the tritium is less than you would get in drinking water and we're going to flush it into the sea. The interesting thing about this review that they're conducting is that they've decided to go for a a science-based approach and that appears to be an attempt to calm fears because of the backlash against this.
2: The United States has hailed the first civilian charter flight from Afghanistan since the American military withdrawal as a positive first step. Qatar Airways flew more than 100 foreign nationals from Kabul to Doha. They included 13 Britons and up to 30 Americans. Marina Legree from the NGO Ascend is trying to get hundreds of girls from the minority Hazara community out on a flight out of the country. She said their situation is desperate.
3: We're not next, as far as we know, and we don't know what the
0: rules of the game will be. These are young Hazara girls who probably will not be allowed to get passports and visas. So they're terrified. They don't feel that they can return home. They feel like they're dying a slow death already. And um, despair is starting to set in because, as I said, this is day 10. And uh, they see that if they go back to Kabul, it's a death sentence, basically.
2: More news on the hour from RTHK.
4: Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Danny Gittings. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. On today's programme, we're talking about global security ahead of tomorrow's 20th anniversary of the September 11 terrorist attacks against the United States. In Afghanistan, the Taliban, who were driven out of power after 9-11, are back in control and have declared a new government, saying they want to live peacefully and don't want any internal or external enemies. Meanwhile, tensions are ongoing between leading world powers and regional conflicts are never far from the headlines. Two decades on from the attacks in the US, where are we now? How has global security changed in that period? We'll be talking to several experts. You can let us know your thoughts. Leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on two double three double 266. Um, Joining us, we have uh, on the line from Australia, uh, Daniel Flitton, who's managing editor of The Interpreter, which is published by the Australian uh, think tank, The Lowy Institute, and is also a former intelligence analyst for the Australian government. Um, Also, um, Michael Zekulin, who's a lecturer at the School of Politics and International Relations at Australian National University, and Bilveer Singh associate professor at the department of political science at the national university of singapore um so perhaps if we could start with uh, michael zekulin um good morning to you good morning uh, so so uh, so well 20 years on from 911 um uh, w- are we any better off is the world a safer place
3: well uh, i mean the, the context in which we ask that question uh, it, it is very difficult uh Look, the reality is is that um, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 and, and how sort of terrorism, particularly Islamist-inspired terrorism, has changed uh, is a large part of the discussion, but that's being rekindled by, uh, I guess, the surprising sort of fall of Afghanistan so quickly, um, because We remember how these things were intimately connected uh, as sort of the outcome of uh, 9-11 and the the commencement of the so-called war on terror. Um, So are we safer? The answer is, uh, in the interim, uh, we succeeded in destabilizing uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, But the reality is, is that we never eliminated them. And of course, through a subsequent series of uh, actions, uh, you cannot sort of neglect cause and effect here. um, We saw the emergence of an additional challenge in in ISIS. Uh, And now having dealt with ISIS, uh, we're now facing sort of the the outcomes uh, which are somewhat unknown. We have some general ideas, but how it actually plays out um, remains to be seen. Um, So Are we safer today? It depends on where you are. Uh, It depends on what you mean by are we safer. Uh, And there is unfortunately still much to be written on it.
5: Yeah, I think you've written fairly extensively about radicalization. It it sounded to me like that's what you're expecting to um, happen again from the uh, Taliban success in um, Afghanistan, that this war sort of inspired uh, people basically all over the Muslim world, in maybe Somalia and so on, to um, uh, prepare for more terror attacks.
3: Well, again, uh, y- you have to look at this for what it is. Uh, when we talked about the fall of the caliphate uh, and-, and ISIS several years ago, we talked about what a blow that was to the propaganda machine and, and to the you know the social movement or ideology which drives groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda. Uh, and so, you know, look just just sort of acknowledging that fact, you also have to recognize that um, this sort of the fall of of. Um, or the U.S. exiting Afghanistan and the, the, you know, the re-emergence of the Taliban is likely a propaganda win or a coup. It's going to inspire a lot of people. Uh, and again, what that means, uh, will that carry over into inspiring, for example, individuals in uh, the West, or will this remain sort of uh, regional or, or local? Um, the bottom line is that this is, this is uh, a shot in the arm, uh, arguably, for, for some of these Islamist groups to, to say we're back.
4: Okay, um, Bill Veer Singh in Singapore, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, friend. How are you? So, fine, thank you. Thanks for joining us. So, so what would you say is the, or are the main threats to global security right now?
6: I, I think, uh, as our previous speakers uh, indicated, I think you stand where you sit. Uh, for us in Southeast Asia, I don't think our starting point is 911. I think our starting point actually is 1979, 1980 so we are talking of not 20 years but 40 years uh from today
5: sorry why you say soviet... 1979 1980 are you referring to the soviet invasion of afghanistan the soviet
6: invasion of the soviet invasion of afghanistan and how things unravel after that and we in the region are still living with that because because of that invasion and the counter to that the mujahideen eventually the birth of al qaeda but for us in the region uh, it was the birth of Affiliates of Al Qaeda who are still around. In fact, in many ways, even more stronger today, even though they're lying low. So I think uh, Afghanistan is now again deja vu for us. And the question is, what Taliban uh, recapture of Afghanistan would mean? Uh, is do we go back to 911, or do we go back to earlier? I think the concern here is because of the existence. Of networks because of the ideological uh, affinities, because of the operations which many groups here did in terms of combat training and even fighting the war in Afghanistan against the Soviets, the personal size uh, and the ideological broad spectrum of far enemy and near enemies. The Al Qaeda groups here, Jama'a Islamia included, uh, are much, much closer to uh, AQ compared to ISIS. So I think the coming back of uh, The close relationship between Taliban and AQ has some very serious implications for us in Southeast Asia. So I think that's where we are looking at things rather than a much more global uh, perspective or spectrum.
5: And how about the role of China in all of this, Bill Basing? I mean, because of course. Uh, 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 uh,
6: Wonderful. I'm sure not too many people are talking, but I think it's it's a very critical point. For China, all of a sudden, uh, Taliban actually brings back. Uh, the negative relations during the period when they were in power, uh, and the Taliban actually did uh, provide uh, support direct and indirect to so-called groups which were uh, supporting the insurgency in Xinjiang. Today, uh, this is the primary concern of Beijing. Hence, they continue to emphasize that, uh, okay, we do not want a vacuum to be created in Afghanistan. We do not want any kind of instability. Uh, we, we would like to support with investments. Uh, but the no-no very clear is no terrorist group of any color should be operating from Afghanistan, which can threaten Xinjiang uh, today or tomorrow. So I think this is the primary uh, concentration of China. And hence, they are playing their cards. with regard to that. All the more in the context of the global Western shift, that uh, there is genocide going on uh, in Xinjiang, China. So I think for the Chinese, uh, Afghanistan and the exit or evacuation of the Americans have all of a sudden brought up some very, very serious uh, concerns and they will be very, very active player
5: there. But we, we've seen the Taliban make all kinds of promises to China already about this, but do, should, should we believe them? I mean, and also, um, uh, are they necessarily I, I, able I, I, to control what's happening in every corner of Afghanistan?
0: I, I, I think that's the point. I, I think the proof of the pudding
6: will be in the eating can. You really control, because there are two major groups, as my Australian friend indicated. It's not just a uh, question of uh, eating and others, but there's also IS Kharofan. So, will the. Afghan Taliban will uh, be able to collaborate and uh, stop all of them. I think it remains to be seen. I think it's early days. Probably I'll give them about 12 months to pacify and stabilize. And it may not happen. What if a uh, civil war breaks out all over again? What we so sure that the Taliban is united? I don't think uh, they are united. This is a united front. How long will the united front remain between the Taliban and the Haqqani group? And so on and so forth. So I think it's too early. Your point is a very good one. Uh, It remains to be seen. I I do not think this is one of those unknown
4: unknowns. Okay, well, let's bring in uh, uh, Daniel Flitton. Uh, Good morning to you. Good
0: morning. morning. Thanks for having me
4: on. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, So so far, we've been talking uh, mostly about um, Afghanistan, Taliban, um, Islamist uh, groups. Um, What, in your view, is the uh, main uh, possible uh, threat to global security on the eve of uh, the uh, 2001 attacks in New York?
0: Oh, it, it is an enormous question, and, and much as Michael and Bill Bear have both said already, I mean, it, it does depend on context. And I think what's different, what, we're, what, what I think we need to remember back 20 years ago is the, the level of shock and surprise that these attacks caused. Obviously, thousands killed. Uh, particularly in New York when the Twin Towers came yeah. down. All, all, yeah. Also, if, also if, sorry,
4: I should have mentioned uh, on, the, on the Pentagon as well, and also the plane that uh, crashed in Pennsylvania. <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. Exactly. The, the, the four planes. And and what what it was, what terrorism has been long understood to be, is, is it was a weapon of the weak. But it was a weapon. The way in which they weaponised what the, the Al Qaeda weaponised the sort of modes of modern transportation, but also too make connections through our, our, our sort of globalised world, if you like, in terms of bringing, bringing the, the danger to the West in the way in which it did, it showed an imagination, which I, I think is the ongoing danger from a terrorist perspective, is always that effort by the people with malign intent to evade security measures, no matter how many times you uh, put in a, a, a extra extra metal detectors at airports uh, or, or whatever protections you put on a building, if they look for soft targets. So they moved away from trying to use aeroplanes, which was such a huge shock, the way in which they did it. Uh, and then eventually uh, it, they, they used vehicles to run down people in the street, which was, again, something when you go back 20 years was sort of, a, in a way, unimaginable. Uh, but also weapons... Uh, putting together phosphate bombs, all sorts of all sorts of innovations, if you like, that terrorists were able to use. And I think if we ask the question, are we safer today than we were back then? Well, I think in some ways, yes, we are. And it's become much more difficult for terrorists to conduct the kind of large-scale attacks that we saw uh, occur with September 11. I mean, we can run through a whole list of events that happened in the 20 years after after... The, uh, the September 11 attacks, it was the Bali bombings, the 7 uh, 7 in London, all the way through to Paris uh, in yeah, 2015, 2015, and there yeah. are many others that you could list. But in a lot of ways, it was a, a sort of sense of diminishing returns for the terrorists in terms of the kind of carnage that they were looking to, uh, looking to inflict. That's not to say that each of those didn't have a, a, a shock involved with them as well, but it wasn't to the scale of this September event.
4: So, how much of that is down to better intelligence?
0: I think, I think to some extent, uh, there, there is, there is undoubtedly better intelligence, better monitoring, better, better, ultimately just an alertness to the danger uh, and and when it's top of mind for governments. Uh, then then there will be a lot more focus on it uh, and the opportunity to disrupt. We always hear of intelligence failures, for instance. We never hear of the intelligence successes because the intelligence agencies are careful about protecting their sources and and their methods in that respect. But on on the other hand, again, it does come down to the kind of nebulous motivations that these groups will have and that the the danger has shifted. Uh, So there was perhaps uh, a sense... Ten years ago, that terrorism and the dangers of terrorism had, to some extent, fallen uh, into the background, but then surged, I think it was Michael who talked about uh, uh, ISIS and the the change with ISIS. Well, particularly for Islamist terrorism, that has evolved too. The al-Qaeda and the, the... the motivations that drove al-Qaeda back in, back in the leading up to September 2001, thats different from ISIS. ISIS and al-Qaeda uh, are rivals in a lot of ways. And we're seeing in Afghanistan now that the local branch of ISIS, they call it ISIS-K uh, or ISK, that is actually the enemy of the Taliban. So they're fighting there as well. So these things, these things become very complicated in that sense, and so the, the, the danger evolves.
5: Is the ISIS model really gone now? I mean, does uh, the sort of the the, uh, the ISIS already on defensive, and the, uh, the triumph of the Taliban in um, Afghanistan still sort of um, loosely connected with Al Qaeda? Does that really mean that uh, the ISIS model is dead? Uh, I don't. I don't really think
0: that the Taliban loosely connected to Al Qaeda, um, uh, but on ISIS itself, look, I. I It's a bit of a cop-out, but I still think it's probably too early to tell. Uh, I think that that what's happened, there's still a a bad lands in Syria. There's still places like Somalia where there's uh, poor governance. And, of course, we don't know how Afghanistan, what's going to happen and how it's going to evolve in Afghanistan now. So wherever there are those ungoverned uh, corners, and Mozambique is another example now where there's... a. If you like a local ISIS franchise that is uh, that is causing trouble and is, um, has involved international deployments now in an effort to try and fight them uh, they'll they 'll continue to move the ground to where they think that they can gain an advantage so it's it's a bit like wrestling with smoke you you, you don 't quite you don 't quite ever win mm. um uh,
4: bill Veer um we, we've talked yeah. we 've talked to um mostly about terrorism, but uh, in terms of tensions between the leading world powers, um, um, what stage are we at in terms of uh, possible threats to disruption to global security there?
6: Uh, I I don't think we can compare this to the Cold War period. Uh, I I think things generally have improved, but competition has shifted uh, to a different arena, and more important, I think the actors have changed fundamentally. Uh, again, the question is where you are. Uh, I, I'm talking from the Asia-Pacific perspective that uh, Cold War, China was not where it is today. So today, the primus interparus in terms of uh, whom are you talking about? I think, uh, is the West or US in decline in China? and the ascendance? I think these are the questions which we are talking about. And more important, the manner the Chinese have played in this part of the world, including Australia, is that uh, while they like to... Uh, talk about power coming out of the barrel of the gun, but it's in the non-military arena where they have been so sophisticated, economic, uh, person-to-person, party-to-party, and other dimension of soft power. So the manner of global competition today uh, is fundamentally uh, different. And uh, if we don't keep an eye on the other aspect uh, of uh, competition, then I think we'll wake up surprises uh, to who has won. So Saudi Asia is almost totally dominated by the Chinese, not through military means, but non-military means, uh, primarily economics. And then look at the university exchanges in this part of the world. I mean, I'm from anywhere. The number of Chinese students here, the number of Singaporean students here to China, is unbelievable, unfathomable compared to the Cold War period. So mm-hmm. the scale, the nature, the character uh, of competition has changed, uh, shifted to, in a way, a new era. Even though we are talking of a zero-sum game of some perspectives, uh, and things like Afghanistan, uh, things like uh, Syria, things like happening in Iraq, I think doesn't make uh, the West in general and the U.S. in particular look a bit too good. And I think under Trump, we really suffered, no TPP and so on and so forth. So I think the competition is on. The Chinese still got a very long way to go. The question is how will players on the ground here? I always say the Chinese are walking distance as far as Saudi Southeast Asia is concerned. Yeah. The United States is 10,000 kilometers away. And so I think uh, we need to shut some distance in mind. Increasingly, it's going to be in the non-military arena. And that's why I think in
0: many ways the Chinese are
4: doing much better. You're certainly right, yeah. I mean, it, it's not like it was in the days of the Cold War when the Soviet Union uh, was still in existence. Uh, a, a lot of us uh, remember growing up during that period. Um, but, uh, but Russia, of course, is still a, a, a major factor. Um, um, how about, I mean, relations between Russia and, and the United States are, are not very good at the moment. Um, um, do you expect to see any development there, any improvement there?
6: I don't see them going to war, put it this way, put the worst case, put the worst case out. I think the competition is not going to recede. Uh, the Russians fear, fair view, perceive that the West is on a march on their borders. And the Russians historically are very paranoid. Whether we agree with their perspective or not, it's a different story. But that would be the Russian perspective of looking at the West. But on the other hand, I don't think they can do much. Yeah, we have Crimea, we they are playing games in ukraine and belarus and so on and so forth i don't think they can go beyond their border areas. Um, this is different from china so russia world is still largely inward looking i don't think putin is going to last for too long domestically they have a lot of issues so and
5: that's china, uh, sorry to so sorry interrupt you that's a brave prediction after how, how long putin has survived so far you think um, putin is on yes. his final you, you do think putin is on his final years
6: I don't think he's going to last beyond a particular period because there's also a lot of domestic uh, unhappiness with him, especially on the economic arena. The youngsters, I think, have lost the youngsters. So yes, he has done well from many perspectives, especially the the Ruski nationalist perspective. But uh, look, uh, the law of biology says you cannot last beyond a particular period, politically or by or in a human perspective. So he is, if he cannot think of another guy who will take over from him, I'm very sure that. The Putin system is going to unravel in
3: one form or another.
4: Michael Zekulin, would you go along with that?
3: Uh, I would. I would just uh, simply point out that we do try to disentangle, for example, international security and, in this context, terrorism from the larger geopolitical issues. But the reality is so many of them are inherently linked. And so what I mean by that is traditional geopolitical competition, the United States, China, Russia... Um, has to do with sphere of influence. So your concern is always, you know, a vacuum that exists or emerges in that part of the world. And what this means for the countries surrounding Afghanistan, uh, we're well aware, you know, China is in discussions with them, Russia is in discussions with them. That neglects to take into account the traditional uh, alliances or, or, or relationships that they've had with Pakistan. So the concern becomes, first and foremost, what happens in this vacuum that potentially expands? So first and foremost, we know nothing stays local. So things in Afghanistan will spill over to Pakistan. They're likely to spill over into you know Tajikistan, the stands that are down there as well, which have their own concerns and issues. And, and what starts to happen is you start to draw in larger and larger players, perhaps India and Pakistan first. And then that, of course, potentially draws in everybody else. Um, issues related to migration, um, you know, refugees fleeing Afghanistan. They have to go somewhere, and they go to neighboring countries that can't necessarily handle them. And, I, look, we've seen lessons from what happened in Syria and Iraq and particularly how it affected Europe. So the concern becomes that the great powers, first and foremost, can't help but get dragged back in if these things start to unravel, but at the same time... If Pakistan looks to reestablish its, you know, its sphere of influence in Afghanistan, how is India going to feel about that? And that, of course, then does bring in China. It potentially brings in Russia. Uh, and as it relates to um, Putin and um, you know his ability to foster this nationalism, your concern will be again that he will use this uh, as a way, like he did following nine eleven, where he went along very nicely with the United States, in particular because he saw the advantages of the war on terror or the U.S. counter strategies in how it would assist him in fostering that nationalism uh, when you were having issues in Chechnya and the other caucus states, Dagestan and Ossetia and places like that. So my real concern is, first and foremost, it's not just about security or terrorism. It's about all of these other issues. Nobody's talking about the economic implications of the rare minerals in in Afghanistan, for example. Um, But the fact is is that it just can't stay local. It can't stay contained. Um, And any way you slice it, I think, unfortunately, I can't give you a timeline, but eventually major players will slowly get sucked in. And where it goes from there, that's where the concern comes in, particularly India and Pakistan and their tensions, their nuclear weapons. And people have to step in to sort of, you know, um, arbitrate that situation. And that's going to cause some tensions as well, potentially.
5: Uh, that's a very gloomy scenario. You, you seem to be stressing we're heading for some kind of explosion.
3: Well, no, I wouldn't stress we're heading for some kind of explosion. I mean, look, we have lots of flashpoints. We've had lots of issues. And and no, I I do not want to be alarmist. I'm just simply trying to point out that it's very difficult to simply disentangle the security or the terrorism part of this from other issues that may, you know, serve as a catalyst to increase tensions or anxieties, which will eventually drag everybody in. It doesn't have to end poorly. It just means that everybody is going to have to get along with everybody or competition will, will take hold. And, again, it doesn't necessarily mean it ends in, in, in some you know, terrible scenario. I'm not trying to, to suggest that. I'm simply trying to point out that the potential is always there.
5: And it, drag, it drags everyone in that sooner or later we might see some foreign power back in Afghanistan.
3: Well, uh, again, I think that the lessons learned uh, from, you know, if not uh, as... Um, one of, one of the other um, contributors uh, mentioned that this is not simply about the last 20 years. It has a very Western US focus because they were involved. But yes, it, it is the, the remnants of the of you know, the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Uh, you know, Afghanistan, the graveyard of, of empires. Okay. Um, and, and I think everybody's trying to avoid going back in. Yeah.
4: Okay. Okay. Well, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, we've got to take a short break for the news at nine o'clock. We'll be back at three minutes past. Um uh, get in touch, email us, backchat at rthk.hk. Leave a message on our Facebook page, backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Give us a call, two double three double 266 Quick look at the weather. Sunny periods and a few showers, very hot during the day. Uh, the outlook, uh, oh, and there may be some thunderstorms later. The outlook, very hot over the weekend, and thunderstorms triggered by high temperatures, 29 degrees, 75%. On RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat uh, with, with me, Jim Gould, and my co-host today, Danny Gittings. Uh, this morning, we're talking about uh, global security. Before we speak to our guests again, um, a couple of messages here on our Facebook page. So TC writes, uh, let's remember why the US and its allies invaded Afghanistan in 2001 it wasn't because the Taliban itself was a threat to American interests, but rather because the Taliban was accused of harboring Osama bin Laden. The larger problem in the years after 9 11 is that after some tyrannical regimes were overthrown with direct or indirect US and Western involvement, they were replaced by worse characters. Another related issue is the war in Iraq diminished the credibility of the West allowing other powers with interests conflicting with that of the West, such as Russia and China, to increase their influence. And Henry writes, For uh, the Taliban, one should not look uh, in the rearview mirror. One must look at what the Taliban is currently. They've become more politically mature, the way they uh, cooperate. Uh, In Western countries, uh, evacuation, etc., is a 180-degree change from the past. Yes, there may be some Islamic customs, but one should not let uh, let such obscure the big picture. Saudi also have some restrictions on women, too, with Taliban- vowing to develop their war-torn country. I bet they would not be involved in terrorist activities anymore. Secondly, for global security, I feel the threat comes from U.S. U.S. waged wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and uh, by proxy and numerous regime changes globally. The U.S. military-industrial complex needs money to make armaments for sale, so we see U.S has a trail of war records in its history. The solution for combating terrorism is really development. Only when countries are developed, people have good jobs, good prospects, uh, they would not engage in terrorist activities. Everybody wants to have a peaceful life, bring up families and see their kids achieve, not seeing their kids kill themselves in suicide bombings. Islam is not about killing or waging jihad wars. Uh, That from Henry. Well, we have uh, uh, with us this morning still uh, Daniel Flitton, who's managing editor of The Interpreter, published by the Lowy Institute in Australia, and is also a former intelligence analyst for the Australian government. And Michael Zekulin, who's a lecturer at the School of Politics and International Relations at Australian National University. And uh, also joining us uh, now is Steve Vickers, who's CEO of Steve Vickers & Associates, a specialist political and corporate risk consultancy. Um, uh, Steve, if we could, uh, thanks for joining us, if we could um, just speak for you, to you for a moment. Um, uh, the Washington-based um, Centre for Strategic and International Studies uh, estimated in 2018 that uh, the number of active terror groups was 67 in the world, which was the most since 1980, and uh, the Number of adherents was anything up to 230,000. Um, how do you see the current state of global security? Are we better off or worse off um, in the 20 years that have passed since the, uh, the 9/11 attacks? Hello, Steve. Steve, Vickers, are you there? Morning. Yeah. Morning. 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 Yeah.
7: The labelling of terrorist groups um, is obviously a highly political uh, situation. So many groups which are which are listed. Uh, are not problematic others are seriously um, uh, problematic as it relates to to Afghanistan obviously we've end, we've just ended a what appears to be a 20 years war whether it's ended where it began or, or didn't it is a, is a question for for debate we have a, a disintegrated um, Afghanistan uh, led by a Taliban which is not much different in reality um, from the, the, lead, the leadership team last time, the guys from Doha who were negotiating uh, with the US seem to be have seem to be um, somewhat sidelined. Um, so the composition of, of team Taliban is, is is not much different. Of interest as it relates to national interests and, and and perhaps how how other countries view t- terrorist groups, China has already engaged in some discussions uh, on the edges with the Taliban. Edge reports are just seeping out now. Uh, the Global Times just reported that the Taliban has promised to uh, control the ETIM members, and which, which is what obviously China wants to hear. Uh, the situation is Afghanistan is utterly bankrupt. Um, the, the, the 20 years uh, of Western intervention basically has turned it into a uh, it, 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 into a welfare recipient um, so that the next powerful person will be the one with the most money to spend and that will be china via that will be china via um, pakistan uh, um. pakistan's role in all this um, is is very dark um, uh, again it would appear that elements of the pakistan military were um, assisting the taliban in supporting their in, in, in structuring their new government giving them advice uh, so it's a uh, it's a um, it's a main player. So the, the Chinese have the money and the, perhaps the ability to uh, to do something. But the uh, the parlous state of what the Taliban is, uh, the state of relations with other people. Um, uh, again, people have made assumptions that they're okay with uh, Iran. That's not what we're seeing. Um, so people are beginning to make uh, assessments as to terrorism as it relates to aviation uh, 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 and the like associated with with this i mean i think the danger is that the west are, to a certain extent fighting yesterday's war i mean the, the, the way forward is different from focusing all our efforts on um, doing the right thing which is obviously helping people that have supported the uh, the western effort but actually Uh, The way forward is to look at what Pakistan is up to, China and the U.S., China and Pakistan will have one regime. There are some bad players around, uh, that there are rumors which are unconfirmed, that a a nation state um, engaged in um, disinformation at the time, causing many people to, to rush to the airport because they received messages on their um, mobile phones, suggesting that if they went, they they could get out uh, and some other messages. So, obviously, that would not have been done by the Americans or the British who were on the ground. So, it's still unclear as to who was behind that. But there are some um, uh, unfortunate players going on. As I say, there's been – it's early, very early days, but uh, it's – we're living in quite unforeseen circumstances. Other, other threats, for, for example, the Taliban have a history of destroying religious uh, uh, religious um, uh, objects,
4: like the Bamiyan Buddhas.
7: Right, and there are some others which are very precious to the, uh, um, which are very precious to Sunnis. Uh, which again, if they start blowing those up, uh, could call, could destabilise the situation. Um, I won't go into sordid details, but could destabilise the situation quite badly. So th- it's really quite a um, it's really quite a loose uh, situation. Uh, but in the end, as I say, it will come back down to who's got more dollars to spend.
4: I mean, China's promised uh, 200 million yuan worth of. Uh uh, aid to Afghanistan, including food supplies, coronavirus vaccines. Um, Afghanistan is not part of the Belt and Road Initiative, is it? I mean, do you, no. do, do you think, is there, is, is there any possibility in the future, do you think that it might become so? Uh,
7: I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I need to have a look at that. My, none of my core clients are currently uh, in there. I think China's main interest is, to contain, is, to, is related to, to containing Islamic terrorism in the West, uh, and in particular, this East Turkestan Islamic movement, although it's just more just a name than a, uh, it's more of a concept than a, an than a, than a, than a organized force. But China's very concerned uh, about that. And that's why one of the key reasons why China, probably through Pakistan, uh, will engage.
5: And You, you of course, advise clients on uh, political and corporate risk and um, I'm sure you've given advice in the past to clients who who are worried about uh, the threat of terror attacks and presumably there's less call for that sort of advice in these days of um, much less international travel and um, it's not something that figures on people's horizon quite in the same way.
7: Well, aviation, obviously, sadly, we all find ourselves (laughs) in this no travel or very little travel bubble. So, yes, from the aviation point of view, that is true. But the areas that we're talking about this morning, obviously, largely landlocked, uh, tra- travel across borders is is, is, is quite easy. It's very porous borders. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's aviation is down, but other stuff, uh, other issues um, that are there all the time.
5: But if you're a sort of a company in Hong Kong or something like that, I mean, in the past, I mean, companies in Hong Kong, we used to be told that the uh, threat of a terrorist attack in Hong Kong was moderate sometimes. I mean, that companies, that sort of thing did figure on your horizon. But in these days, when um, nobody's traveling, it presumably doesn't in the same way.
7: Well, definitions of terrorism, of course, uh, could, take it, could take us a whole day. But clearly, we've, we have a national security law here that's been a, a very significant crackdown. Um, uh, so, I would think you know, Hong Kong is a very hard target a to get into now and b uh, uh, and b to operate in so I, from a purely selfish Hong Kong point of view uh, this, the threat is, is, is moderate to low
4: looking at the global stage, uh, one of the main changes uh, that 's happened uh, well at the start of this year of course is the change of leadership in the United States, so no more Donald Trump uh, now we have President uh, Joe Biden. Um, Daniel Flitton, um, do you expect that change to make uh, a, a huge difference? I, I mean, I mean, a, a lot of the initiatives that Trump uh, put in place uh, are still in existence, aren't they? I mean, it, it hasn't as it's not as though there's been a sudden uh, change of direction in in uh, international um, uh, policies and relations. And Daniel no, Flitton, but yeah.
0: personality, personalities always matter, and you, know, you only have to think back a couple of years to the huge focus that there was on North Korea uh, during the early days of the Trump, Trump administration, which, which was pretty scary. You in in, uh, know, in, in there was a, an enormous growing fear about fire and fury and the prospect of a conflict that could grow from that, which then evaporated almost as suddenly once Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un had their summit together and they they talked the talk of diplomacy, whether they actually got anything done or not. So things can change very quickly and a lot of that depends on personalities and I don't think a Joe Biden would have uh, offered to do a sit-down summit with the North Korean leader, for instance. So as much as Trump was a disruptive figure, not all of his disruption uh, was necessarily, I'm going to say this carefully, but necessarily negative. Uh, I think just to sort of go back to the bigger picture, I, I don't get a sense uh, that China would take a great deal of joy, for instance, in the US humiliation in Afghanistan, at least not, the, not what's unfolded in the, in the last few weeks. And the, the Biden decision to pull the United States out of Afghanistan means that the United States will have more capacity to, do, uh, to undertake more actions elsewhere. And that could put pressure on China in places like the South China Sea. Uh and that's something that Beijing I, I imagine would be very cognizant of. There's there's a bit of a boutique debate about whether terrorism or grey zone activities, if you like, uh, um if you use the modern parlance, um different, but whether they have strategic consequences and you know, I, I think I think that we saw when the United States went into Iraq following September 11, that uh, these, these sorts of terrorist attacks or, or other uh, other sort of actions that are not necessarily driven by a state can have real strategic consequences. And another one is what we're all going through at the moment, uh, which Steve alluded to, it's COVID. The, the COVID lockdown has... Uh, and, and Sorry, the COVID experience has very much accelerated the competition... Between the United States and China, I think it was a it was a competition that was coming anyway, and a rivalry that was building anyway. But it has accelerated extraordinarily in the last uh, eighteen months, and that's uh, that's a, a sort of a wafer that we now we now look at. Um,
5: Michael Seckler, and you're still with us. Yes. Yes. Um, how about your thoughts on the impact of uh, Sino-U.S. rivalry on um, on the war on terror? I mean, the, the the big contrast now, isn't it, between now and 2001, in 2001 uh, Sino-U.S. relations were pretty good and there was sort of, a, you might say, almost a U- united stance on these sort of things and it's not so clear that that would be the situation today.
3: No. Uh, I mean, I agree completely with the, with the point just made in particular about... Uh, the ability to shuffle resources now that you've wound down you know the what you've done in afghanistan and your ability to redeploy resources um i would just again sort of mention and this this applies as well in the context of the 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 changing uh president in the united states uh is uh, actually and COVID, i guess in certain contexts is the rise of the sort of the fragmentation um, or polarization, which has been growing in the United States. And again, you talk about, you know, whether this was, uh, you know, uh, brought on by Trump or, or whether Trump is sort of the result of this over the years. Um, the bottom line is that, you know, there is a, a tremendous amount of, and again, we're not going to say terrorism, but we're going to say sort of um uh, political violence or violent extremism extremism on its whole and then you know some who are crossing that rubicon from from you know violent sort of ideas and, into taking action on it in the u.s uh and again what we're seeing right now is is that you know the u.s has has some issues in their own house that they have to take care of um and obviously with the, the difference in in government uh, democracy in the united states uh, China has a, a distinct uh, advantage, unfortunately, and I don't say that flippantly, in their ability to quell internal dissent or to sort of, uh, you know, um, hold things together with a little bit more of a heavy hand than the United States does. So one of the things I'm interested in, of course, is that how the internal fragmentation um, affects uh, the ability of the United States to, A, project the United Front and get anything done on the international um, scene, uh, but more importantly, uh, it, again, it's something that uh, that China doesn't have to worry about. Not from the same perspective of the challenges they might face, but their ability to sort of deal with it differently. So, so again, just a distraction for the United States, which might inevitably affect their ability um, to stay focused on. Um, things internationally when they have so many problems
4: um, happening domestically right now. Steve Vickers, a bit of a wild card factor in this part of the world, if you like, and that's uh, North Korea. Um, uh, It seems they're continuing to develop their nuclear arsenal. Um, As mentioned a little earlier of the the summit between Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, how do you expect uh, Joe Biden is going to deal with North Korea?
7: biden can deal with him to a certain extent it's uh, xi jinping who is the the big player in town i think as it relates to, to dealing with north korea look they're in desperate desperate financial trouble um, the great leader himself i don't know if you saw it more recently on the tv appears to have lost a lot of weight and i think in sh- i don't know whether that's to show the people that he's with them or whether he's just lost a lot of weight the country is in deep deep financial, the deep, deep trouble. The one card they have to play to get noticed is the, is the nuclear card. So I think we're going to see this uh, come up as an issue over the, over the coming months, uh, and largely it's, it's an issue to take, take notice of me. Um, I, need, you know, I need
4: help. Is, that, is it going to be very destabilizing, do you think, for the region?
7: I, I don't think China needs this right now. Um, I think it really will be a question of... I mean, if we got it got out of hand, it would be deeply destabilising, uh, especially as it relates to Japan and, uh, and, and, so, and other, mm. other countries. But uh, at, the, at this point, this is a... Uh, it's it, it him uh, drawing attention to their
5: ability, again, using the only tool that they that they have in the box. Uh, Daniel Flitton, any thoughts on that? We haven't really thought about the North Korean angle.
0: No. It's... It, 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 it's a tricky one because the North Korea gets treated a little bit like it's a petri dish for the climate that somehow if you just add a certain ingredient here or a certain you know, you change a factor there that somehow the issue can be resolved. But it also is an assumption that it can be managed. And one of the things that the North Koreans have shown is that they're they're um, they're unpredictable. And so what Steve was just saying there is right. That sort of potential for it to blow up uh, does does depend a, a little bit on the, the manner in which China would then lean on a Pyongyang, and they might provide them some support. But there is there is always Pyongyang's strength is to be able to uh, be unpredictable with the Chinese as well. And I don't think that that necessarily means they're going to they're going to break off relations or anything as dramatic as that. But it It is it is one of those sort of unpredictable factors that could flare up very quickly again and because of the involvement of nuclear weapons it does tend to grab a lot of attention. So yes,
4: it's their, their weakness is their strength. OK, quick message here from our transport department. Uh, there's traffic congestion on the island eastern corridor um, because of an accident. Uh, the fast lane central bound is uh, closed to all traffic. OK, um, uh, another uh, another... Issue that we've touched upon but haven't talked about very much, of course, is uh, Iran um, and Iran's relations with the West and its neighbours um, are still very much an issue. Um, Michael Zekelin, um yeah, Iran. <laughs> what? How much of a how much of a possible um, threat to um, global security is that situation now? Well, uh, and, and again,
3: I, I mean, I think I would sort of echo what what. Uh the other two contributors have said um and sort of highlight this with the fact that the way the you know the focus over the past two years let's say or year and a half has of course been covid um and and so essentially there is a whole lot uh flying under the radar uh there's a whole Mm -hmm. lot that um we we don't really know about um so again, I would point out things you know, such as what's happening in Syria and Iraq, and we, do we really know what's going on the ground? What's happening on the ground there? Uh, we know Iran uh, is you know similar to North Korea um, in the sense that uh, they they can provoke. Um, we're well aware of this. So I am a little more, I'm a, I'm a little more optimistic uh, on Iran. Um, simply because of the the fact that, A, they're no longer under the the squeeze of the West. You have, you know, uh, Iraq on the one side and Afghanistan on the other, now that the United States is out of Afghanistan. Um, They're out of the region, so hopefully that will settle things. Um, But again, the the internal challenges facing Iran right now, um, be it COVID, be it their economy, uh, be it the lack of, of, of goodwill that exists currently, um, or trust between them and the West, uh, I think it could go either way. Um, I think that they want to engage and and come back to the table, but I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, And so, again, I think a lot is dependent on how things play out as we start to emerge from COVID, which we hopefully will soon, and, again, what a certain degree of normalcy we return to looks like, I can't say, but it's going to be interesting on all of these fronts, uh, you know, North Korea included, uh, you know, Iran, um, it, just sort of seeing what's sort of hiding or lurking beneath the surface because we've all been pre focused on or focused on a lot of other things.
5: And uh, looking forward, um, our predictions for what is going to going—I mean, <coughs> uh, the war on terror has been the defining feature of the last couple of decades, almost as if uh, the Cold War is the defining feature of the decades before that. Um, and now, people—some people—are saying it's going to be Sino-U.S. rivalry. Uh, Dan- Daniel Flitton, in, in, in this sort of year, it's always dangerous to make predictions in the years, decades to come. Is, is are we going to be caring more about Sino-U.S. rivalry or about the about the war on terror? Oh no, I
0: think. I mean, I, predictions can last as long as we're talking on the telephone here. But uh, but I, I do think that the U.S.-China uh, relationship is going to be the defining issue for the world in the in the coming coming years. Uh, the, the, that's not to say that terrorism issues won't won't rear, rear their head, and it's not to say that other transnational problems. Like a, a COVID pandemic, uh, which caught us by surprise, uh, won't also uh, gather a whole uh, um, government attention. But the, the US China relationship is spiraling. Uh, it is it is breaking apart in the sense that there is a technological divide as much as there is now a political divide. And so, whether, you know, the comparisons with the Cold War are fraught, but that's uh, there is a tension between the United States and China and in those tensions little issues can then become the spark to, to light a bigger fire and in the news break earlier there was talk about the, 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 the challenge that was being created by Japan releasing water from the Fukushima reactor into, into, the, into the ocean you never know, something like that even can become a source of tension which then piled on other issues, which piled on, say, a a freedom of um, navigation operation that's conducted in the South China Sea. All these things can create stress and tension. Ultimately, at the end of all of this, there are people, leaders as people who make decisions and when making decisions under stress can make bad ones. And we've seen in the United States their capacity to make a strategic mistake, such as the invasion of Iraq. Um, we've seen China make some some extraordinary mistakes over the years too, and the prospect of that turning into a hot war would put the kind of events that we've been talking about with with respect to September 11 would would put them into a pale shadow if there was a, a, a conflict between the great powers.
5: Steve Vickers, the uh, sino us relationship replaces the uh, war on terror as the sort of dominating global theme in the decades to come.
7: Well, I think big picture. Uh, U.S. has just been through a disastrous loss of prestige far beyond Afghanistan that unfortunately could cause um, other powers, China included, to consider perhaps that the, the U.S. is not as strong as it was or less likely to react. In the end, America is a fox. It has an interest in many different things. Uh, and, and China is a hedgehog, and its primary concern is it, it, Taiwan, China, the South China Sea, and what have you. Uh, China will continue to focus very strongly on that uh, any problem in that area would, would be highly problematic.
5: Are you sure China is a hedgehog? I mean, a lot of people in China probably would not um, I mean make that particular comparison. in mean,
7: strategic things. terms. Like hedgehogs don't move far, but their concerns are very deep. So uh, the, the primary Chinese concern is, is, is Taiwan, uh, whereas America is, has its nose, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, in many, uh, many, many different issues all over the place. But China's primary strategic concern is its own borders to include Xinjiang and the rest uh, and Taiwan. Uh, and that, that, that really is the, I think their major strategic brand. Anything that interferes with that could be problematic.
4: Okay. on that note, we're going to thank our guests. Uh, Thank you very much to Steve Vickers, who you heard there, who's CEO of Steve Vickers & Associates, a specialist political and corporate risk consultancy. Um, Thank you to Michael Zekulin, who's a lecturer at the School of Politics and International Relations at Australian National University. Thanks to Daniel Flitton, managing editor of The Interpreter, which is published by the Lowy Institute and is a former intelligence analyst for the Australian Government. And before the break, uh, we heard from Balveer Singh, who's an associate professor at the Department of Political Science at National University of Singapore. Um, and thanks very much to you, Danny. And uh, just before we go, a quick look at the weather. Um, sunny periods and a few showers. Um, very hot during the day with a top temperature of around 33 degrees. Isolated thunderstorms later, moderate to fresh east to northeasterly winds. Uh, there will be swells. The outlook, very hot over the weekend, and there'll be thunderstorms triggered by high temperatures. And the weather will be unsettled early next week. Currently, it's 30 degrees. Humidity is at 74%, and a very hot weather warning is in effect.
1: The Women's Commission's Capacity Building Mileage Program provides a wide range of courses for women to pursue lifelong learning and self-development. The courses empower women to face life's challenges with a positive mindset. Enrollment for the new semester has commenced. Copies of the prospectus are available at the district offices. For program details, please call 2915-2380. And now
4: the new summary with Vicki Wong.
3: A fire at a flat in Paktin Estate in Shekhip May has killed one person and injured 11 others. The blaze broke out at about 2.30 in the morning and was put out by firefighters about 30 minutes later. A United Nations envoy has urged the international community to continue to provide humanitarian aid for Afghanistan, despite concerns about the new Taliban government. And US President Joe Biden has set out a series of measures to get more Americans vaccinated against COVID-19 amid a surge in cases of the fast-spreading Delta variant. I'll have more news at 11 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh,
8: sociology prof from the University of it's Set and Costume designer, Great interpreter of Beethoven and. oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy cats, co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really quiet, adults, it's not really for cats. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Interviews in and also
1: observations.
8: Absolutely no way.
1: On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew.
8: morning, welcome to Friday, here on The Morning Brew. A musical one for you this morning after 10. We're going to welcome the wonderful and now Hong Kong-based renowned concert pianist, Robin Zabeda. So later in the month, he's going to be presenting a recital at City Hall of music by the composer that everyone's heard of, but kind of when pushed, you can't really say an awful lot about that. Could be because the amazing Franz Schubert died at the age of 31 but he certainly fitted a lot into those handful of years. Well, after 50 days hard at it in Tokyo, delivering top-flight Olympics coverage to you, our roving man of sport, Danny Hicks, is firmly back in Hong Kong. So sports and all returns to its normal time. And after 12, we're off to the movies with our resident critic, James Marsh. Join Marshie and Danny on Facebook Live with your all-important comments and questions. 27 minutes at 10 o'clock. New order, Blue Monday.